Well, good morning. My name's Matt Kerber. I'm a pastor here at City Reformed. Uh, we are dismissing children for Children's Church. It's a place in which uh, they will be uh, formed and shaped. Some of our members will be fulfilling the very vows they made this morning by uh, caring for your kids as they go out with the intention of helping them to return. That's, that's the goal. We're, we're, bringing, we're bringing them back to participate more fully in what we do. Um, those of you who haven't been with us all summer or those of you who are new, I'll give just a brief uh, summary of what we're doing in the sermon series. We are moving through a book of the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, one of, it's really the, the history book of the Old Testament that is last chronologically of the Old Testament books, the book of Nehemiah. Uh, it is a book that deals with uh, the, the restoration of Jerusalem after a period of exile. And in this story, it began where Nehemiah, who was a prominent official in the Persian Empire, and the Persian Empire was controlling this part of the world. They were uh, in power over Israel and over Jerusalem. Uh, the people of God had been taken into exile in Babylon, but uh, some had found their place there. Nehemiah was one of them. But he was grieved that those exiles who returned Jerusalem, to Jerusalem had not been able to rebuild the city. The temple had been rebuilt, but the walls were in ruins. And so Nehemiah approaches the king. He asked for help. He asked for time. And he returned. Was, he was appointed governor over this part of Jerusalem and Israel. And he led a work of restoration. In a short period of time, in the face of great opposition, the walls were rebuilt. And then in the second half of Nehemiah, there was a spiritual restoration the people read long portions of God's word. They heard about uh, the, what, what God was expecting from them. And in repentance and faith, they recommitted themselves to God. The passage we're looking at today is almost the end of Nehemiah. Next week, we'll have a, a final chapter. It's something of an epilogue. Several years later, it tells what happened later. But this part of Nehemiah is coming to a close, and it's coming to a close with a grand celebration. The wall is being rededicated, or dedicated. The wall is being committed to God, and they're celebrating God's faithfulness. The prayers that Nehemiah had been praying throughout the book have been answered. The hard work of God's people in the midst of opposition had reached a place of fulfillment. And so they celebrate together. And we'll see as we look at the passage that it is a, a joyous celebration characterized by resounding singing. Uh, some of the passage today, I'm not going to read that part in italics. It's there for you to read a long list of names of the priests and the Levites. These very people who will play such an important role in leading the celebration at the dedication of the wall. But I'll pick up in uh, chapter 12, uh, uh, verses uh, 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness with thanksgiving and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of, Jer of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. 
One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate. And after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah. And Azariah, Ezra, uh, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah. And certain of the priest's sons with trumpets. Zechariah and the sons of Jonathan. Son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachor, son of Asaph. And his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Milael, Gilead, Mai, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani. With the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra, the scribe, went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of Judah to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall. Above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshanah, and by the fish gate, and the, to- and the tower of Hanael, and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests, Eliakim, Maaseiah, Minanim, Micaiah, Eleoniah, Zechariah, Hananiah, with trumpets, and Maaseiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzai, Jehohanan, Malchaijah, Alam, and Ezar. And the singer sang with Jezreiah as their leader, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men, made, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the town. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, they were directors of the singers. There were directors of the singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we always do when we come to the book of Nehemiah, we're reminded that these things took place in a land long ago and far away. Uh, distant from us, a different culture at a different time, and yet there are themes that are very familiar. I'd like to draw your attention to an aspect of this text that runs throughout. We're reminded that there is a dedication of the wall, but as we look in the opening verses, we see the, the prominent role that singing, in particular joyful singing, plays in this great celebration. Uh, the celebration was Uh, Again, the culmination of what's happening throughout the book, the dedication of the wall, the recognition of God's work through his people. In in the beginning, in uh, in the opening verses uh, of 27 and 28, we see the efforts to call all of the musicians from their various places, the singers 
that had gathered around the district so that at the dedication of the wall, in verse 27, they would be able to celebrate with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing. As the passage moves on, we see the important role of singing in the celebration. Much of the center part of the passage outlines the, the pathway taken by two groups of people, led by two choirs. There was going to be a procession moving around the, uh, the perimeter of the city, the walls that they had been rebuilding. And each of them is led by a great choir that moves forward with singing, bringing them together to the temple. And then uh, we see, again, uh, as, the, as the people gather in the temple at the northern part of the city of Jerusalem, we see that the singers sang together as their, uh, with, uh, with their leader. In verse 43, they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. The singers gathering and the people joining with them in their celebration. And we can imagine the, the resounding sound of their voices carrying over the hills. Singing was such an important part of this celebration. Not just any singing, but joyful singing. It was something that required preparation. There were leaders that needed to work with them. And in the, the closing paragraph of this section, we see that providing for the leaders to sing was an important thing as well. So whether it's the, the statements of singing, the pathways of the choir, or the provision for future singers, this is a passage, a chapter about joyful singing. Now again, it's a land far, uh, far away in a time long ago. Uh, in many ways, it is different from us. There is continuity. These are God's people relating to him graciously through a covenant of grace, but it's before Jesus, his death and his resurrection. Some of the things are different. And yet I believe this principle, this principle of joyful singing is one that we can take pretty directly into our own lives. The New Testament calls God's people to be people that sing. Again and again, the work of God's spirit in the life of the church is often portrayed in singing, joyful singing. And in those wonderful places in the Bible where prophets give us a, a, a prophetic image of the worship in heaven, it's often a scene in which voices of joyful singing resound with praises to God. Joyful singing. In some ways, I, I think preaching this sermon to this congregation can feel a bit like preaching to the choir. Uh, you might know that saying. Uh, it literally means you're telling people something they already know. By and large, our church sings well. In, in many ways, it's because people are taking it seriously. I'm, I'm so thankful for uh, Daniel Snoke's leadership as the uh, music leader coordinating many things. You'll, you'll notice how often he, he pulls the music back to allow the voices of the congregation to, her, to be heard. We heard Alicia doing that in many of our songs today. Your singing is important. But if we're honest, I think we would say it's not always easy. It's not always easy to sing joyfully. We often walk in here on Sunday morning feeling the weight and the burden of this world. The challenges in our lives, sometimes very difficult and personal challenges, cast their shadow on our singing. 
It's not easy to sing, is it? Some of you are natural singers, and you might do this in, in, in some part of your other rest of your life, but many of us don't actually sing, or we don't feel like we sing that well. You may not have thought of it this way, but when we gather and sing together as a congregation, we are doing something that's really very countercultural. If you're a visitor here today and you maybe don't go to church very often, you might be struck by that. It's a big group of people singing, and that doesn't happen in many places, does it? Yesterday, I was, uh, or Friday, I was having uh, lunch at the master's kitchen with a uh, a friend of ours, Miss Beverly, some of you know either from Belfield Dwellings or the Master's Kitchen. She is uh, a seasoned saint, as we might say, someone who's been around for a while. We were talking about local high schools where uh, my kids go to school, where she went to school, and she, her eyes lit up and she got excited. She said to me, when I was in high school, all the kids from the different high schools would get together and they would each bring songs and they would sing songs one after another together. It tells you how long ago she was in high school. And I looked at her, I said, Miss Beverly, the kids don't do that anymore. Her eyes got wide and she looked at me and said, well, why not? It's not that we don't have music. We have music everywhere, but most music is performance, isn't it? someone else singing to you or you're listening to it and even when we listen don't we listen increasingly with the little things in our ears in our own little worlds it's often performance and it's often private with a few exceptions take me out to the ball game during the seventh inning stretch or the hokey pokey perhaps at a wedding people might join along and sing and occasionally a few people may lift their voices in a not-so-resounding chorus of happy birthday to you. But we don't really sing, not like our ancestors. Those of you coming from other cultures and places might know that the singing joy that resounds through soccer games throughout the world as clubs serenade their teams with affirmation and praise. Sometimes throughout the entire game, we don't really do that. Joyful singing isn't as easy as we may think. As we look at the passage today, I think there's several things we can learn, several ways we can be encouraged. First of all, as we just look at some of the details of the movements, we can be reminded of the power of people singing together. Just put that before you as, as a great thing. Many of you have experienced it, but the power, this joyful singing that could be heard, we're told, far away. What a beautiful celebration it was. Uh, but I also want to think practically about the passage. There, there, are, there are three things I think we can draw out of it. Three things they did that we can do to encourage our own joyful singing. And, and finally, I want to close with several examples. Uh, so first of all, we'll think about the movements of the passage and, and what's happening as the people move around. This power of group singing. Uh, the center part of the passage is a, is a description of two groups of people moving around the city. In the beginning, they tell us how the singers were gathered, and then we're told that there were two groups, and the leaders went up onto the wall, and it seems the choirs may have gone up with them, and then the people followed along, perhaps walking on the wall or perhaps walking along the wall. There were two groups, and as they went singing, they went in different directions. It's actually a sort of a stirring image, if you can recreate it. Last week, I told you we had maps of the city of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's time. Of course, there, uh, there, there are attempts to reconstruct some of these things. I don't know if any are left. But if you were to look at the city of David, 
in the time of Nehemiah, it it would look something maybe like a pork chop, wide at the top to the north, moving downward off the hill to a more narrow point. And at the top, near the top of the hill, was the temple. And so one group moves to the south following uh, the leaders and the people following the choirs. They move, retracing the outline of the city, walking along the walls, remembering all that God had done as they sought him in prayer, as they sought to rebuild their city. And they, they came to the temple from the south and they moved into the temple. Meanwhile, the other group was moving the opposite direction. It says they move to the north. They, they go to the western edge of the city. And it seems they go up and around the temple to the top and come into the temple from the north. And so these two groups, as they come, are, are converging into the temple. And we have this, uh, this picture in, in verse 40 where Nehemiah says, So both choirs of those who gave thanks, stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. And they sang, and they rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Can you just picture what it would have been like? You might not have the advantage of a physical picture of the city, but you can picture them coming, converging from the north and from the south together. They would have heard not only the voices of their own group, but then the echoing voices of the other group as they came together. It would have been something of a a round robin, we do that, or an echo sometimes, right? You have one group singing and the other. Together as they came, you would have heard the voices echoing off the walls and some of the first buildings that had been rebuilt in the city. You can imagine the impact that it would have had on those that were there. In a world where you didn't have amplified music, where you weren't used to sounds of this volume, to hear the voices lifted together with the instruments. It says all the instruments of David, the ones outlined in the Old Testament, together this great celebration of noise as they came into the temple and as God made them rejoice with great joy. You can imagine the the, the power, the emotion of the moment as they came together. And I hope as we think about it, you feel within yourself a longing to experience that sort of worship. One day we will, fully and completely. But here and now, God calls us to joyful worship. And I know that, again, I know generally we sing well, but I know as well it's a challenge. It's a challenge, isn't it? Week after week day after day, perhaps on your own, learning to sing joyfully when all in life seems to go the opposite direction. Joy isn't something we just turn on easily. We don't have a joy switch. On one hand, the Bible tells us that in this particular passage, God made them rejoice. God was at work in their joy. We also know in the New Testament that joy is considered a fruit of the Spirit, something God's Spirit works in us. And yet, on the other hand, the Apostle Paul can say to the Philippian church in Ephesians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. He commands God's people to rejoice. And so we know that while it's not something we just flip on our own, it's something that we are meant to encourage. It's something we're meant to pursue. We can be commanded to rejoice by Paul. 
I think there's three things in this passage we can see that encourage, encourage our joyful singing, encourage joy in general, but certainly in this context. The first thing is very, very practical. I want you to think about all of the practical preparation that made this joyful singing possible. It's really sort of the emphasis of the first paragraph. There were people who went out and found all the people in the villages and brought them in. And when they came, the musicians came and the singers came and they came with their instruments. Any of our, our musicians can tell you that takes some work and some preparation. They, they had to fix their instruments or if they were stringed instruments in some sense, tune them. They had to learn the song. For this choir to be able to lead, there was preparation that was necessary. It's, it's really most likely the reason that there's such an emphasis at the end on the provision for the musicians. Uh, that's how the passage ends. They were going to make sure that they collected enough money to provide for the people who would lead them. There's a preparation necessary. And each week as we gather together, we benefit tremendously from those on our worship team that have come prepared to lead us in worship. And most of our worship team are volunteers, but we do receive money each week in an offering, some of which pays for music leaders. It's necessary. The, pre- the preparation I'm thinking of, though, in this passage goes beyond what they do, but it's also what we do. Singing is not necessarily automatic. Singing, learning to sing well, learning to sing joyfully, sometimes means actually learning to sing. Some of you know this. You know this intuitively or you learned at a young age, but there are different notes that you can hit at different times, and some of them go together and some of them don't. My family will tell you I don't know this very intuitively. But as a young Christian, I benefited so much from people around me that helped me. I sing better than I used to. We can prepare to sing. We can prepare ourselves for worship, ready to come together, learning the songs, learning to sing, preparing ourselves as we come in. We know there are days where you feel like you're only staggering to get here and you lean into the preparation of others. But as we give ourselves to the preparation of our worship together, we prepare ourselves to sing joyfully. The great Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner said this, Elaborate festivities can be hollow, but where the occasion is great, the demanding business of planning, proclaiming, assembling, and rehearsing makes good kindling material for emotions. That's what we're doing. We're kindling our emotions as we prepare. The second thing we learn in the passage is that they also needed to be purified. In verse 30, towards the beginning, it says the priests and the Levites purified themselves And they purified the people and the gates and the walls. And this is a place where we see difference between the Christian church and God's people before Jesus. Uh, In in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the, the working of the priests and of the Old Testament ceremonies is is summarized this way. The author of Hebrews says, they sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Sacrifices and sprinkling, showing the necessity of sacrifice for purity. In verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 22, the author of Hebrews says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, Christians no longer practice these things the same way. 
Hebrews 10 says, we've been sanctified through the holy offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But the principle of the matter still stands. That we seek to purify ourselves not by adding to the work of Jesus, but by remembering the work of Jesus so that it would be vivid in our lives. These Old Testament practices of purification would have done many things for the people. They were preparation for our spiritual lives. They would have been reminded that God owns all things. The walls, the city of Jerusalem that were purified, these belong to God. And these people would have been reminded that God is holy and that by nature we are not. That we need a sacrifice, we need a savior, we need blood to be shed for us. Thanks be to God, we have received Jesus Christ. And we are reminded that coming into God's presence is never something we do lightly. In a sense, each week we rehearse some of these things as well. We don't call it purification in the same way, but I think there's a a principle that overlaps as we sing together and worship, then we pause for a time of renewal, confessing our sins, being assured of God's pardon in Jesus, remembering that all we have belongs to Him. We are recommitted to God and to His purposes. Third and finally, as we look at the passage, we see the important way in which this joyful singing is a response to God's gracious work. Three times in the passage, the word thanksgiving is used. Verse 27, they sang, they dedicated with gladness, thanksgiving, and the singing. Verse 40, it says, the choirs and those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. And in verse 46, it says, there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. The word thankfulness reminds us that we sing in response to. Our joyful singing flows out of a reality of who God is and what he's done. And so there are many aspects of this passage. When we look at them closely, we realize what the people are doing. What is stirring their their joyful singing is a vivid awareness of who God is and what he's done. The whole thing is, after all, a dedication of the temple. The occasion on which they've gathered is an occasion where they look back over all of the action that's happened in these 12 chapters of Nehemiah, and they're reminded that God answers prayer. God is present. God is faithful. God will care for us. God deliver us. In the beginning of the book, we we were noting how many times Nehemiah was said to have prayed and sometimes listing his prayers specifically. We were also reminded that Nehemiah in his first arrival back in Jerusalem, Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2, he, he first walked around the city and he saw everything was broken down. And here at the conclusion of the book, he walks much the same route. And as he walked, he must have, must have been thinking in his mind of all of the days that were spent, sometimes with a, a sword in one hand and a, and a shovel in the other as enemies gathered around them, of all the prayers said in desperation as, there, as the plots and schemes attacked him personally. And we can only imagine that Nehemiah, as he walked, would have looked at the walls and remembered the prayers that had been said in dedication not that long ago. Zoe, we sang with joy. They sang with joy as they reflected on God's faithfulness, not only to them in their moment, but, but to their people 
down through the years, you notice that many places in the passage, it gives reference to the singing of David, the great king of Israel, who had lived hundreds of years before Nehemiah. As they looked at the walls, they saw God's immediate faithfulness. But as they sang and they worshipped, they sang the songs of Zion that had been handed down through the generations. They sang in the great line of David and of Asaph and of those who went before them. And they sang joyfully with a, a joy that could be heard far away. As I said, this is not always easy for us, is it? Singing is not always easy. There are days where we find it's a great joy to come and when the music hits it well and when our, our heart is lifted and maybe it's a, a larger crowd of people, we find singing to be easy, but often it's difficult. True joy, our circumstances push us different directions. The challenges and difficulties of our life weigh heavily upon us. The, the shadows of the world around us are often dark and cloud our vision. I want to remind you as we look at this passage that life was not easy for Nehemiah and his friends. And it has not been easy for his people down through the ages. We are encouraged by the singing of others. That's why we sing together. But we are encouraged not only by the singing of those here, but of the voices of those who have gone before us. Let me close by reminding you of two singing voices, two voices from years past that testify to joy in the midst of hardship. Yesterday, many of us in the congregation attended a funeral for Don McMillan's mother. She died in her old age after a uh, a long period of difficulty, much of which was struggling with onsetting dementia. She came from a, a part of the Presbyterian tradition, really the, the oldest part of our tradition, that sings psalms, sings the songs of Zion regularly and repeatedly. And as we gathered in the funeral, those of us there probably noted together how strong the singing was. These were the, the songs that she grew up on. Mrs. McMillan grew up on, the songs that had marked her life. And perhaps she was singing in her life, and we sing sometimes too, the very songs that Nehemiah and his people sang as they marched around the city. We don't know for sure what, what they were singing, but they could have been singing what we call Psalm 96. They could have been singing, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. Mrs. McMillan sang those psalms in her life. And at the funeral, uh, Don testified as he spoke about her life that as the difficult pain of memory loss began to set in, the singing held strong. As she found it difficult to remember what had happened recently, who the people around her were, as she failed to remember even where she was, she could remember to sing the songs of Zion. And to the very end, she responded to music when all other response was gone. The singing held her through, did it not? 
In our own country, we think of the use of song sustaining people in difficulty and hardship. In our own country, people outside our immediate reform tradition have often sang with great joy in the midst of great hardship. In in America, the African-American church is a, a church of God's people that have endured great hardship through many centuries, and yet in the midst of it, have had a worship characterized by joy, by reflection on the greatness of God, and by singing that sustained people through difficulty. Each week I talked with the worship leader about the music. This week, as the week went on, and I saw more and more what the sermon was doing, I continued to talk with Alicia. She was scheduled to leave this week, and later in the week I was talking with her about the sermon, and I said, Alicia, I knew, I know you grew up in an African-American church. Her father was a pastor. She was raised in, I believe, Alabama. I asked her about her music. I said, I, I, said, I know when you lead, you, you bring something with you that's just a, a little bit different. I, I know, I've, I've heard the, the music that you have grown up in, and I understand something. Would you help me understand the way in which joyful singing sustained your church in the midst of hardship? Alicia uh, graciously uh, jotted down some reflections and allowed me to share them with you. And we look forward to a time she may be able to share more broadly and fully about some of these experiences. Alicia's words as she reflects on the singing in her tradition. She wrote, thinking about the black church will always remind me of expressive singing and music. Maybe that's part of the reason I loved going to church as much, even when I was younger, even when I wasn't a Christian. It was one of the most awe-inspiring moments to see, experience, and be part of women, men, young girls, and old would gather together and sing the old songs of Zion, as we called them. The atmosphere was one of warmth, camaraderie, empathy, and community. There There was especially shown as we sang together. The organ would play soulful hymns and songs that resonated with the congregation so deeply it spoke to our spirits, it uplifted our souls. The mood shifted completely and drastically with the rise of these songs. And we could, for a moment, forget about financial woes, heartbreak in relationship, discrimination, racism, the loss of loved ones, etc., Because this singing took us to the gates of heaven. We would ponder the majestic scenes of heaven and also reflect on how our ancestors, who understood hardship so well, focused their eyes on Jesus. It was the singing that carried us through change, through pain, through difficulty, beyond belief. It was the music that brought our very souls to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, God is... Creator God has designed singing to be a blessing to us and has called us to sing joyfully. He has called us to be a people that reflect on his saving work in history, most clearly through the cross, but sustaining his people in all places and in so many difficult times. As we come together, carrying our own burdens and difficulties, there will be times where grief is deep, heartache and loss are real and we must lean 
into the singing of others. But my prayer and my request is that we would learn to be a people that sing even more joyfully in the face of hardship. Difficulties lie ahead personally as a congregation, as a country, but we don't need to be defined by them. Our joyful singing is a testament to our community identity in a time of individualism. It's a testament to hope in the midst of heartache. It's a testament to a future reality of a heavenly kingdom that God is bringing even now in the power of his spirit. In just a moment, we're going to sing. I don't want to put you on the spot, but as I talked with Alicia this week, I asked Alicia, I said, would you challenge us just a little bit in our last song? Would you, would you bring us a, a song of Zion and, and challenge us just a little bit to sing maybe beyond our normal range? Uh, challenge us to sing with a joyful enthusiasm, not, not that we're not normally jo- joyful, but perhaps in a range that's a little bit different. And maybe we'll be able to do it, and maybe it'll feel just a little bit different. My challenge to you is not just today, but in the upcoming weeks and years, would we become together by the grace of God a people that sing joyfully? And may it be said that the singing of the new Jerusalem will be heard far away. Let's close in prayer.